All right, well, man, it's, it's, uh, the weather's getting nice out, and it's warm, I'm, I'm a little, uh, and, and worship was great, and so I'm like sweating already. I'm like, man, I'm gonna have to start like powdering my forehead so I'm not shiny for the online, like people who are joining us. If I am, I'm sorry. Uh, but it was good, I, I love being here with, with you guys um, each, each week now. We're, we're, we're back on site, we're still continuing online too, and I love getting to, to hang out together. Uh, we're starting a new series today, um, it's called Aftermath, uh, and it, it's all about it's kind of picking up from where we left off last week. It's all about what happened in the aftermath of the resurrection. As we celebrated last week, the resurrection of Jesus. And from that point in history, things changed. This movement was launched called the church, and, and the world changed because of it. And so we're going to spend a few weeks talking, uh, talking about that idea. What happened in the aftermath? What were the, Specifically, for the first century, the, the initial followers of Jesus... Like what was it that was the foundation of their faith? What was it that, that, that allowed them to, to hold to faith, to trust in Jesus, to have incredible hope and incredible confidence? Um, and, and I think as, as we seek to pursue Jesus in the 21st century, we should look to that example. I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the future of the church uh, is going to look a lot more like the first century than it is the 21st century. In, in terms of, uh, uh, how the church is positioned and engages with the world around us and culture around us. The church, I think, is going to and needs to look a lot more like the first century than it has in the 21st century or the, the several centuries before that. Because in, in the first century, um, like the church and followers of Jesus, they were weird. They were odd. They were on the outskirts and the outside of, of the normal society. It was completely countercultural. They were this strange minority group of people, but yet... Because of what God did through them, the world changed. Uh, and, and it's kind of been, you know, the, the church in, in the last several centuries hasn't been that. The church has been very much in a position of power, and there's been a, a veneer of cultural Christianity across, uh, across the West, at least. And we're moving, it, it, it's, it's, it's obvious we're moving back towards more where followers of Jesus and the church is a little bit on the outside of what's normal. And I think that's a really, really good thing. Um, but as we move more to that, I think we should take our cue from that first century church. How did they pursue Jesus? Where was their foundation and our hope? And one of the things we're kind of going to hone in on, and one of the things we really need to take our cue from, uh, is, is what we do with this. Like, how, how do we view the scripture? How do we talk about it? Uh, because I'm going to say something that might sound a little controversial, but give me the benefit of the doubt and we'll unpack it a little bit. We've sometimes made the mistake of turning the Bible into the foundation of our faith. But the Bible, a book, is not the foundation of the Christian faith. It was not the foundation of the faith for the earliest followers of Jesus because the Bible, as we think about it, like this, all kind of all these, these books and letters all bound together in one place, they didn't have one of these. The Bible in this form didn't come to exist until like the fourth century. There were a few hundred years of church and followers of Jesus and the world changing because of the message of Jesus before we ever had the scripture in this form. In the early days, there, there may have been some access to the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, but if you wanted to have those, you had to go to like the synagogue because it was on big scrolls. You had to go there to read it. Uh, there were some, some letters from the apostles that were floating around and they would pass them from church to church, but there was no book to go to and say, this is why I believe what I believe. Their foundation was something different. It was what we talked about last week. It was an event. It was the resurrection. See, the foundation of the Christian faith isn't a book. The foundation of the Christian faith is the person of Jesus. 
And we believe Jesus not because we read about him in a book, but because he rose from the dead. That's, that's where we, we anchor ourselves. Now listen, I, I absolutely love scripture. We, we think scripture is important. We have a very high view of scripture at this church um, and, and we think it's all the things that we, that we talk about. It's authoritative, it's inspired from God and there, there's the things we read about uh, in the letter to Timothy that it's God-breathed and it's useful for teaching and instructing and correcting and training in righteousness and we say yes and amen to all of that. But scripture is our authority. If you're a follower of Jesus, we look to that as our authority but there's a difference between authority and foundation. Authority says, I'm a follower of Jesus and I wanna know how do I do that? What does it look like to be living as, as, a, as a person of the kingdom of God in my reality? And so if I'm following Jesus, how do I, how do I know how, how to do relationships or marriage or parenting or sex or finances or career? How do I engage with my neighbors? How do I love other people? I go, oh, this is my authority. I, I look here because I discovered Jesus' way for my life. That's my authority. But foundation is where something came from. It's what it was built on. It's what started it. In other words, like the Jesus movement, the Christianity, the Christian faith was not invented and is not based upon a book. If you took the book away, there would still be faith in Jesus because it's about an event that happened in history. And the early church anchored themselves to that truth. And, and here's what happens. Here's what, what the issue becomes. When we, make, when we say, I, I believe what I believe because a, you know, a book tells me so, because the Bible, and again, I love it. It's inspired. It's all of those things. But it becomes a foundation that crumbles. It becomes a house of cards. Because many times the way that we were handed this, we, it was never really explained in the nuance and the context and different cultures and it's thousands of years old in different languages. And what happens is, is we're handed this book and says, it's all God's word, just believe it. And then some, somewhere for so many of us, for our kids, for our grandkids, for some of us as adults, we're hand, we're, somewhere in life we go to high school or go to college or we see something on the internet or we meet somebody really smart and they go, yeah, but you believe what you believe because of that book, but here's something that maybe is a contradiction. And, or here is something that, uh, that, that, that science disproves. Or, or here is something uh, that, that there's a scandal around the origins of the Bible itself and how there was a lot of human hands involved with how we, how we got it in this form because and sometimes we're taught that like, we have this idea that the Bible just like dropped out of heaven as choirs of angels sang and it lowered, like, oh, it's the Bible. It's like, that's not how it came to be, but if we never knew that, it becomes very, very scandalous. And, and, and then if that's where our faith is anchored, we go, oh my gosh, if I can't trust that, then I can't be a follower of Jesus anymore. Now, I think if we had time to, to talk about that and spend years studying that, and we do, and we will talk about those things, that, that, that we can work through a lot of those issues, but that's not the point. The point is there is an event in history that we anchor our faith to. There's, there's been so many um, deconstruction stories that I've heard over the past couple of years of, of people who grew up in the church that were followers of Jesus, um, and, and they just, they're not anymore. They say, I don't believe that anymore. I've walked away. I don't buy it. There's been some really high profile, like famous people that uh, were famous in kind of like the Christian subculture, musicians and entertainers and different, uh, different people, but then also just people I know, people that I went to school with or friends that I have or, or people that I'm, I'm acquainted with that, that said, look, I don't believe that anymore. And when you dig into the story, so often it has to do with the way that we were presented the Bible. And they thought that was the foundation of faith. And then when that came into question, faith fell apart. And so for the next couple of weeks, I want us to look at a stronger foundation. 
to, to view scripture in the right way, but to anchor ourselves to the thing that the first century followers of Jesus anchored themselves to. How, what, what, where, again, where was their hope? Where was their trust? Where was their faith found? Uh, and then how did they engage with scripture? How did they view, especially the Old Testament? Because that's one of those parts that really get us tripped up. So that's where we're going. We're gonna pick things up um, where we left off last week in terms of, of the timeline. Um, you know, last week we, we talked about the resurrection of Jesus uh, and that, that, that sparked the movement, that launched the church. And so what happened was you know, Jesus is crucified, he's buried, he's risen, and then he starts appearing to people. For about the next 40 days, there are Jesus sightings all in and around the city of Jerusalem and people are seeing Jesus. He appears to over like a, a few hundred people have said, we've seen the risen Jesus. And so that's happening. At the end of that period, Jesus appears to his disciples and, and he says, okay, I'm, I'm leaving. He's ascending to the Father and he tells them, you're gonna be my witnesses. You're gonna spread this message everywhere, um, but wait, because the Holy Spirit's gonna come. And so th- that's kind of where we pick things up. The disciples, they're, they're in the city of Jerusalem. They're, they're kind of just in a holding pattern. They're waiting for the, the Holy Spirit to show up. And, and we're gonna discover over uh, just a couple of chapters of reading about the early church what their foundation was, and when the Holy Spirit comes and they start proclaiming the message of Jesus, what was the message that they proclaimed? What was the source, the foundation of the movement, the message, and more than that, their hope and their boldness? Uh, So we're gonna be in the book of Acts. If you'd like to follow along, we're gonna cover kind of the first couple of chapters, just highlighting these different almost gospel messages or declaring the message of Jesus and what happened. Uh, And these are all pretty much given by Peter. The apostle Peter becomes like the spokesperson in the early church. Uh, And and so Acts is written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And it's this like historical almost journal that Luke is recording the first few decades after the resurrection of the church and the things that happened. And so the Holy Spirit has come and it's this crazy event. You know, the disciples were waiting for the Holy Spirit and, and we read that the Holy Spirit falls and like there's this big sound of a rushing wind uh, and then Luke describes that something like tongues of fire came and rested above their heads. And I'm like, I have no idea like what, what that looks like and I'm guessing Luke is trying to put into words what's probably pretty hard to explain. He's like, I don't know, like these tongues of fire are above people's head and there was this loud sound of a rushing wind but whatever happened, like the Holy Spirit came in an unusual and powerful way, and then the disciples, they go out into the city of Jerusalem, and they start telling everybody about Jesus, and this is at the time of the Jewish festival of Pentecost, and so there's, there's all these Jewish peoples that have come from other areas of the world that have come into the city of Jerusalem, so it's packed full of people. And, and as it's packed full of people, they, they, they're from different areas, they're speaking different languages, and they hear, um, they, they hear this message of Jesus being proclaimed in their own language. And they're like, what is going on? And so Peter stands up and he's like, I'm gonna explain it to you. And he opens this message by actually quoting some Old Testament scripture. He, he quotes what, what uh, Pastor Paul just read a few minutes ago from the prophet Joel about the Holy Spirit coming. And he's like, hey, that's what you're seeing right now. And so he kind of uses that as his introduction as he's talking to a Jewish audience. But then he gets to his it's like main point in the meat of his message. So the first sermon ever, ever preached, like the first Christian sermon, the first someone is standing up in front of a whole bunch of people after the resurrection and saying, here's what happened. It is Peter in Acts chapters two, starting in verse 22. He says this, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you 
through him as you yourselves know. And so he starts by anchoring it uh, not, to, not, not to a nice lesson or, or not to uh, an illustration. He doesn't give them like a, a, a word picture. He gives them a history lesson. He says, you know, a couple of weeks ago in this very city and for the last three years, this Jesus guy, he has been doing miracles and signs and wonders. In fact, you, you, you all know this because you were there. Because this wasn't years and years ago, this was a couple of weeks ago in the city that we're standing in and in the surrounding areas. And so everybody in Peter's audience is going, oh yeah, that's right, we we remember all about Jesus and and the crowds that followed him and the the things that he taught and the miracles that he did. And then he says that this man, this, this Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. In other words, what happened to him, it wasn't just an accident, it wasn't just a mistake, that, that God was up to something. God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. He says, yeah, you, you know that Jesus? You killed him by nailing him to a cross. And, and you know, like today we'll, we'll sometimes use that as an illustration. We'll say things like, it was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. Ah, amen and hallelujah and all that stuff and like that's a great like word picture and and it's certainly true there is something about our sin and the sin of the world is is why Jesus went to the cross but that's not what what Peter's doing Peter's not using an illustration to say no your sin nailed Jesus to the cross he's looking at a group of people and saying no you were literally responsible for having this guy nailed to the cross because in the crowd of people that Peter would say that I'm addressing today some of you were in a different crowd a couple of weeks ago You see, a few weeks ago, some of you were in the crowd that became a part of an angry, violent mob and started shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So Peter's like, when I say you killed him by hanging him to a cross, I mean you killed him by hanging him to a cross. But that's not the end of Peter's message. That's just the beginning. Like the best part comes next. He says, you killed him by hanging him to a cross, but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then Peter quotes another Old Testament scripture. He quotes a psalm from from David as if to say to his Jewish audience, hey, this shouldn't surprise us. This was was here all along. David, we love love David and we're waiting for one from the line of David. We're waiting for the Messiah who's gonna come from the line of David. But, But we can go to David's tomb right now and we can see his body, Peter would say to his audience. But then he kind of lands on the main point. They're thinking, yeah, we know David, one from the line of David, but David's dead. And, and he says this, he says, but God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. If Peter had like a little bulletin with spots to fill in, to fill in your notes in that sermon that day, it would have went like this. It would have it been, you killed him, God raised him, we've seen him. That, that was like the three-part part sermon that Peter gave. You killed him, God raised him, and we have seen him. And then he moves into the application of, of his message. Verse 36, he says, therefore, therefore, in light of the fact that we all know who this Jesus guy was, therefore, in light of the fact that, that you killed him by hanging him to a cross, but God raised him and we've seen him, therefore, let all of Israel know. Let all of Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, he doesn't want them to forget that, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And so he's talking to a group of Jewish people who were waiting, who were looking for their Messiah, their Redeemer, their King, the one who would uh, set them free and establish the, uh, the, the, the kingdom of God on earth. He says, this Jesus is your Messiah. 
But because he's the Jewish Messiah, God had promised to do something for the entire world through the nation of Israel. So he says, because he's your Messiah, he's also Lord. He's not just the Jewish Messiah, he's the Lord and the King of the entire universe. He is good news for all people at all times, everywhere. Because you killed him, but God raised him and we've seen him. So be assured that he is Lord and Messiah. And this starts to, to sink in on, on the crowd that's there that day. And it, it says that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Oh my goodness, you're, you're, you're right. We, 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 were, we saw the signs and the wonders. And, uh, and, and, and yeah, we were there that day in that crowd. And we, we were the ones that wanted him crucified. And now there's all of these people that say they've seen him raised from the dead. He is our Messiah. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replies, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter says, hey, it's really simple. Here's what you need to do. You need to, to repent. Um, and, and in this context, Peter's not using that in terms of repent from sin. That's often what, what we associate the word repent with, but it has a broader meaning of just changing your mind, changing the way that you, you see things, how you view things. And this is a group of Jewish people, so they're not thinking, hey, repent from sin. They already had a system for that. They already had the sacrificial system. They were already God's covenant people. So Peter's not saying, hey, turn away from your sin. He's saying, change your mind about how you see Jesus who you think he was and who he is. See him for who he is, Lord and Messiah. And he says, once you've done that, be baptized. Go, go public with that decision that, that you're here in the city of Jerusalem, you're surrounded by all your other Jewish people and many of them are gonna think you're crazy. You're surrounded by you know, uh, uh, people of, of Rome and these Roman soldiers and, and eventually they're gonna come to think that you are a threat, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to publicly declare that I'm all in on Jesus. And Luke records for us that, that many people received the message that day and became followers of Jesus, that 3,000 people out of this crowd said, yes, we are in, we, we, we believe it, we've, we've seen it, we've heard the eyewitness accounts, we are in, he is our Messiah. The first, the first kind of sermon ever given with a huge response and all these people are like, yes, we wanna follow Jesus. And Peter doesn't explain the teachings of Jesus. Peter, he, he doesn't uh, expound upon the miracles of Jesus and the significance of those. Those things would all come later and, and, and Christians would study those things. But Peter says, listen, if you wanna know, if you wanna get down on the ground level and know what this Jesus thing is all about, if you wanna know the foundation of our faith and our hope and our message to you, it's simply this. God has raised Jesus from the dead and we have seen him. And so he is the Lord. And, and that sets the pattern for what the entire book of Acts, when you read messages like sermons or speeches that are given by the apostles, like that is the framework of everyone they give. It's you killed him, God raised him, we've seen him, like turn to him, accept that he is, is the Lord. And so that's what, that's what happens over and over, especially in these first few chapters. The next, uh, the next kind of account of this is in Acts chapter three, Peter and John, they're on their way into the temple because for them, they were Jewish followers of Jesus, all the original disciples were, and so they don't leave their Judaism behind. They see Jesus as the fulfillment of their faith, and so they're still going to the temple to worship. And they're going to the temple one day, and there's, there's a man there who, who's lame, he can't walk. Uh, and lame people and blind people and crippled people, they would stay outside of the temple day after day, and as people would go in and out of the temple, they would, they would beg for, for money or whatever so that they could survive. And so Peter and John are on their way to the temple, and there's this lame, lame guy who, who sees them coming, and he gets their attention, and he's asking for money, and Peter and John are like, bro, we're broke. We don't have any money. But what we do have, 
will give you. And they say, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy stands up, and then he starts following them into the temple because, I mean, he hasn't been able to walk his whole life, and now he can start walking. I mean, he's like, I'm following the two guys that told me to get up and walk, and it works. So he follows them into the temple grounds, and a crowd starts to form. Because again, this, this guy had sat outside the temple day after day after day. And so the people that were in, inside the, the temple grounds, they recognized him. Like, wait, aren't you the guy that couldn't walk? And so this crowd starts to form because the, the, they, they see this miracle that's happened. And anytime a crowd starts to form, like Peter just can't, can't help himself. He's like, well, here's a great opportunity to tell y'all about Jesus. And so he does it again. And we see the same thing. Check this out. This is Acts chapter three, starting in verse 13. It's he, Peter says, the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. And so again, he's, he's talking to his Jewish audience. He's connecting with them. He says, he's glorified his servant, Jesus. That's a pretty good start. And then Peter's like, all right, we're not messing around. Next thing he says, you handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate though he had decided to let him go. Because in the crowd that day when, when Jesus was, uh, was arrested, uh, Pilate's like, I can't find any reason to accuse this guy. There's no reason why he, he deserves the, the, the death penalty. Pilate's trying to let him go, but the crowd just keeps shouting, no, crucify him. We wanna see him dead. And so Peter's like, hey, you remember that you were there that day. You, you, you killed him, you disowned him. You disowned the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. One of the things that the pilot tries, he's got these two prisoners, and he says, hey, I'm, I'm gonna release one of them. And you've got Jesus, who, who, who's done nothing but heal people, and love people, and welcome people, and do miracles, and teach incredible things. And then you have Barabbas, who's an insurrectionist and a murderer. Which one do you want? And the crowd shouts, give us Barabbas. Kill Jesus. And so Peter's just giving them a quick history lesson. He's like, you, you remember, this was just a few weeks ago. You were there. You, you disowned the holy and righteous one. And then the next thing he says is shocking. He says, you killed the author of life. Like, you, you killed God. Hey, hey you, you people, you're here at the temple, and, and you're bringing your offerings and your sacrifices and, and because you're here and you want to worship God, but God showed up in your midst, and you were face-to-face with him. And when you were face-to-face with God, do you know what you decided to do? You thought the best thing to do would be to kill him. And so Peter, he, he's not pulling any punches. But then again, he makes the turn. He says, but, but, God raised him from the dead, and here it is again. We are witnesses of this. And it's by faith in the name of Jesus that this man who you see and know was made strong. It's, it's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you all can see. This is crazy, because Peter says this on the temple grounds. Peter says this, I mean, you gotta imagine that in this situation, if a fight were to break out, the only people on Peter's side are Peter who's there, John who's there, and the guy that just got healed. He's like, I guess I, guess I gotta be on this side. But they are outnumbered. It is a huge crowd of people, and Peter's just like, hey, everybody listen up. You killed God. And not just the crowd of people, but this is the temple grounds. The religious leaders are there too. Like this is, this is their own backyard, they're there at work, the priests are doing the sacrificial thing, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're there doing their teachings and different thing, and, and Peter's just like, I, I, I don't care, he, he, I'm gonna tell you exactly what I need to tell you. He is fearless, he is, he is bold. What, what, what is the source of his confidence? Because a few, a, a few weeks ago, 
Peter and the other disciples, after Jesus was killed, they lock themselves in a room and hide because they're afraid of the religious leaders. And now he's pounding on their front door saying, hey, I need to tell you something. You killed Jesus, but God raised him and we've seen him. What was the source of his faith, of his hope, of his confidence? It it was not something that he read. It was not something that was read to him. It was not something that he grew up learning about. Peter would say, look, the only reason I would do something so crazy and have so much faith and have so much hope is because I saw Jesus crucified. And then I saw him alive again. And I know it sounds crazy, but that is what I saw. Peter would say, that is the foundation of my faith. That's the foundation of my hope. So Peter declares this message, but not everyone is so thrilled by it. We read that, hey, lots of people respond to it, and they're like, yeah, we, we believe you. We're in on this as well. But there are some people that aren't so wild about it. Like I said, the religious leaders are, they're, they're lurking in the shadows, they're close by, and they, they see that there's a crowd forming, and they go and check out what's going on, and, and they hear what Peter is saying. And as you can imagine, they're, they're not too thrilled by, by this message, because of the implications it has for them, and so they take Peter and John, and they throw them into prison, uh, and it's nighttime, so they just leave them to sit in a prison cell for, for the night, and in the morning, they're going to bring them out and kind of question them and, and see what happens, but... Luke makes a point to record who exactly was there. He, he drops some names so we know who exactly is questioning Peter and John. Verse five says, the next day the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem and Annas the high priest was there, powerful guy, and, and so were, and here's the big name, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. See, Luke makes a point to let us know of the people that that had Peter and John arrested, that have called them out, that are going to question them, Caiaphas was there. Caiaphas, when we hear his name, we're like, wait, that sounds familiar. That's the guy when he shows up, like the ominous music starts playing and everyone's like, oh no, this is the bad guy. Caiaphas was was the one who was responsible for orchestrating the execution of Jesus. He was the one behind the scenes, pulling the string, setting the whole thing up. He was kind of that driving force saying, we've got to have this guy killed. Hey, let's get that, that, that Judas guy perfect. We'll pay him. We'll get Rome involved like Caiaphas. And Luke's like, I want you to know that the person that Peter and John are standing in front of right now is that guy. Undoubtedly, if he was able to, to, to orchestrate the death of Jesus, he could certainly do the same thing to Peter and John again. And so we have this group of religious leaders there. And, and they're, they're going to question Peter and John. So they, they had Peter and John brought before them. This is 4-7. Um, and, and they began to question them. By what power or name did you do this? And I can just kind of imagine Peter smiling and saying, wow, you really shouldn't have asked. Verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and we're being asked how he was healed, and they're all like, yes, that's what we're asking you. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Peter's like, you, got, you, you wanna know what's going on? Yeah, Jesus, who you killed, Caiaphas, you killed him, but God raised him. And we've seen him and his power is working and moving in the world around us. 
And then Peter goes a little bit further. He says, Jesus is, and he quotes the Jewish scriptures to these Jewish religious leaders. They would have known exactly what he was doing. Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. He says, look, Jesus is, is the one. He is the, the one that all of this is built on. The faith is built on. He is the cornerstone because God raised him from the dead, and he's now at the right hand of the Father. And salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. When they saw the courage of these two guys, because everyone who had had gathered around, who had formed the crowd that day, everyone who's like, what is going to happen? Everyone who's watching this showdown and they can just feel the tension mounting, everyone there knew exactly what happened to Jesus. It had just happened a few weeks ago. Everyone knew not only what happened to Jesus, but they, they, they would have known that the, the Jewish religious leaders, they were kind of behind it. They were the ones pulling the strings. And so now they're, they're watching this unfold. They knew what happened to Jesus. And here are two guys speaking on behalf of Jesus and calling out some of the most powerful men in the nation and saying, you killed him. You killed him. They realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. In other words, they, they had no power. They had no formal education. Peter and John were a, basically a couple of nobodies. They were, they were fishermen from the middle of nowhere, some podunk little town. They, they, they had no power. They should have been intimidated by the people that they were sitting and standing in front of because they had all the power. But Peter and John have this insane courage. It's extraordinary. Why? Why were they, why were they so bold? Why did they have so much hope? Why did nothing threaten them? Because when you lose your fear of death, you no longer fear anything. When, when, when death is no longer on the table, you, the, the, the thing happens, you're like, what, what do I have? If the worst thing you can do is kill me, and I'm, I'm not even worried about that anymore, nothing can make me fear. And they had no fear of death because they had seen their master, their teacher, their friend be killed in the most horrific of ways. And they saw him alive again. They had conversations with him. They had breakfast with him. They, they, they saw him many, many times. And so they go, what do, I, what, what do we have to be afraid of? If, if we were to ask Peter, Peter, why do you have so much hope? Peter, why do you have faith in Jesus? He would say, well, that's why. I saw him killed. And now he's alive. What else do I have to be afraid of? The Jewish religious leaders who are there, they realize they can't punish these two right now because a certifiable miracle happened. The guy that was, that was lame that can now walk, he's standing right there and everyone's watching this. They're like, well, we can't do anything because a miracle has happened. So that would be a bad look to you know, punish the guys who are part of bringing healing to this guy. So they just tell them, just stop it. No more teaching in the name of Jesus. No more proclaiming this message. Like this is your final warning. This is the last straw. Peter, John, all the rest of you troublemakers that are followers of this Jesus, cut it out or else. Just kind of that veiled threat, you know. But Peter and the others are not phased. Verse 19 tells us that Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. In other words, hey, you know, Caiaphas, Annas, the, the rest of you, we, we, we understand that you got to do what you got to do, and it may cost us, and, and you got to figure that out for yourself, but then he says, but as for us, again, you, you're going to do what you're going to do, that's not our concern. As for us, 
we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we've heard. Peter says, you you can arrest us, you can beat us, you can kill us. You you can torture us, and and those things would happen over and over again to the followers of Jesus, but Peter says, "We, we can't stop proclaiming this message and it's not because we read about it it's not because someone told us to believe it we we can't stop talking about what we've seen we can't unsee it we saw him dead we saw him alive how could we possibly not keep telling people about that we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and and what we heard and those weren't just uh, empty words it wasn't Peter just like uh, talking a big talk but not backing it up being like we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard but let's lay low for a while that's not what happened because the very next chapter, chapter five, we see, we see Peter and John and, and the, other, the other apostles, they get rearrested by the same group of people for doing the exact same thing again. Chapter five, verse 29 says, Peter and the, the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. And they'd say, and, and here's why. Here's why we have to obey God. Here's why we can't be quiet. Verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. And then, in case they forgot from the last time he told them, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. It's like he's just always got to get that in there. Hey, God raised from Jesus from the dead. And oh, by the way, the reason he raised him from the dead is because you killed him. God raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. And God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And we are witnesses, we are witnesses, we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, the religious leaders, they were furious and they wanted to put him to death. And they would have had it not been for uh, an old wise Pharisee named Gamaliel. And he, he says, oh, well, let, let's hold up before we go killing anybody. And they, they put the, the, the apostles out for a little bit and they have a little meeting of the, the religious council. And he says, listen, we, we've seen this before. There have been other so-called messiahs, or messianic movements, and there, there were. There were people before Jesus and after Jesus that claimed to be the messiah. And what he says is, you know, every time that, that happened, Rome or somebody stepped in and killed the leader. And when the leader died, the movement died with him. And so he said, in this, in this case, let's just, let's just play it out. Let's see what happens. And he makes this incredible statement, says, if this is just a man-made thing, then it, it'll fade away just like the other ones did. But if this is something that God is doing, we can't stop it anyway. And that's what happened. And so they, they call them back in. Verse 40 says they call the apostles back in, and they had them flogged. And then they were ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. So they have them in and they have them flogged and the flogging is just a severe, severe beating. I mean, it's, if you're not gonna kill somebody about the next worst thing you can do is have them flogged because we, we are gonna teach you to not do whatever you did. It was painful and not only that, it was a shameful reminder because they would bear the scars on their back and on their bodies for the rest of their lives from the flogging and people would see that and they would know that these men had a past that they had a run-in with the authorities, that they got in trouble with the law. And so they, they walk away after receiving this flogging and this warning of do not, like you've got to stop talking about Jesus. And they leave and they don't go away weeping, they don't go away mourning, they don't go away lamenting, or they don't go away remorseful and be like, oh man, we really got to stop. We read that the apostles left the Sanhedrin, that's the, the Jewish council, they left rejoicing 
because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day, this is crazy, day after day in the temple courts. You know, they could have just been like, okay, I guess, you know, that really hurt. We don't want to go back and experience that again. So, so maybe we'll just stick to the countryside. Maybe we'll go out and, you know, like into the, the other regions and tell them about Jesus. But Luke's like, no, that's not what they did. Day after day after day after day, they keep going back to the temple. They keep going back to the very same people that have beat them senseless. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Day after day, they go up and it's like, hey, I, I, yeah, yes, we're here again and I know you're gonna beat us and I know you're gonna throw us in prison and I know you're gonna kill us, but we can't stop. Not because someone told us to believe this, not because we read about it, but because we've seen it with our own eyes. You, you killed Jesus. You know, you were there for that, but God raised him from the dead and we've seen him. How can we possibly stop? You see, that, they, those, those people, those are our people. That's our, that's our heritage. That's our history. If you're a follower of Jesus, we're here today because of their faithfulness. We're here today because they had a foundation of faith that was so strong. That's the reason that the message of Jesus survived the first, the second, the third centuries. That's the reason this thing called the church lasted as, as long as it has, that the church survived. The church survived the first, second, third century. The church is still around today, and, it, and it's crazy because it shouldn't have. The church that was caught in between the temple, which wanted to eradicate it, and the Roman Empire, which would eventually come to want to eradicate it, the church survived. It's, it's something that historians are actually like, how did this happen? It's, it's this thing that doesn't make sense, and the reason that it did, that the movement endured and the message survived the reason there was such fearlessness and boldness and hope among the first followers of Jesus wasn't because they simply believed something that they read, but it was what they saw with their own eyes. And they said, look, it doesn't matter what you do to us. We can't stop. We know what happened. And the message would spread like crazy. And it would go all throughout the Roman Empire and then beyond and all throughout the world. And it changed the world. But the reason that happened is because in the very first days, they embraced a version of faith and a foundation of faith that I would want all of us to. They embraced a foundation for their faith that, that I want my children to embrace and yours and your grandkids, that, that I want all of us to embrace, not a foundation that says, okay, um, believe in Jesus because you read about it or because it's right here, or believe in Jesus because your family does, or believe in Jesus because uh, we, we, we live in a, a somewhat Christianized culture. No, I want my own children and yours and you to embrace Jesus because something happened in history, because they killed him but God raised him and he was seen by hundreds of people and we have eyewitness accounts after eyewitness account after eyewitness account says yes we've seen him alive that's what I want us to embrace it's the message that hey Jesus is Lord he's the king and he is a good and benevolent and amazing king but the reason the reason I can say that is because he was crucified but he was risen he's the crucified and risen Lord and when we embrace that message we have hope we have trust, we have confidence, we have boldness, we have courage, because again, if death is off the table, what else do I have to be afraid of? That, that's the beauty of the resurrection. It's not that, just, that Jesus was raised. The Apostle Paul tells us that he was the first fruits of resurrection. He was the first one to experience resurrection, but all of us who have found life in him, resurrection is our future as well. 
And not just for us, but resurrection is the future for the, for, for the world, for the creation. That the story of scripture is, is resurrection and new life. It's us as a physical creation, physical people living on the new resurrected creation. And we have hope in that because Jesus was raised. It was, it's, a, it's an event, it's something that happened. That's the message that when we embrace that, nothing can shake us in spite of everything that's happening around us. And it's also the message that when the church gets that right, when the church proclaims that message and says, let's clear away some of the clutter and some of these things that we make to be uh, primary issues that aren't even close to being primary issues, that, that yes, we're gonna talk about scripture and what it looks like to follow him and we're gonna engage in that and know how to do that, but when we proclaim the message to the world that, that here, here's what we're all about, that Jesus is the Lord, and here's why, because God raised him, we've seen him, God raised him, we've seen him, we proclaim the simple message that he was crucified, but he was raised from the dead, and he was seen. What, what happens when that message of Jesus goes out is the same thing that happened in the early days in the book of Acts. When that message, that, that message of Jesus is the crucified, risen Lord, when people hear that, they find healing. When people, when people hear that, they, they find hope where there was hopelessness. They find a reason to live, they find new life. They find Jesus, and that's what we are all invited into. It's not just about here and now. It's a, we, we are part of, of something that's been going on for 2,000 years because it's had such a strong foundation. The foundation of our faith, it's, it's not just a, a book. I love the Bible, it's great, I love studying it. But I believe in Jesus not because I read about it, but because he rose from the dead, and people saw it. That's what we're invited into as well. We're gonna pick this back up next week, uh, but before I I get out of here, I wanna pray for us. God, we thank you um, just for the truth of who you are. Just, God, we know that you are a God of love, of compassion, of grace, of mercy, of justice, of all of those things, and the the reason we can say that with confidence is, is because of the resurrection of Jesus, because it brings into focus exactly who you are, that Jesus, you came and you willingly laid down your life and you showed us what it was to be human and you showed us how to love and how to live and we love that and that's amazing but the reason that we trust that is because you are alive right now, you are here with us right now, you are in our presence. We thank you for that, we praise you for that. I pray that we would live out of that hope, that we would build our lives off of that foundation. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.